Did Jimmy sleep in his garage again? It's weird getting to the studio first. Hey, Gary, what's up? My contact from the mainland is coming today. I'm meeting him by the aviary since he's closed to the public for security renovations. I hope it's worth the risk. He's a private investigator who's been looking into all those shell companies I told you about last month. He says he found at least a few things that'll blow this case wide open. Raymond won't be able to ignore this evidence. Everyone's gonna flip when they hear this news. Hear what news, Mr. Machak? Uh, uh, oh, uh, that's great, Jimmy. We'll talk more when you get here. Top of the morning to you, governor. What ho, Mr. Machan, but please do address your superior with a bit more respect. Whatever you say, George Three. Thank you, Nate. Can I call you Nate? It seems like a common name that I hear around the offices these days. Nah, it's what everybody calls me. In fact, you can thank the board for that. Your employers, well, well, all of our employers. Well, they are quite fond of you. And there's several people in the offices that are quite fond of you as well, Nate. Mm. Specifically your friends and your family. And as we all know, a good circle of friends and family is very hard to come by these days. Yeah, especially these on the island. Well, of course. With these turbulent times in society and what's going on with the island lately, it would be a shame if your circle of friends and pseudo-family got ever smaller over time, Mr. Marchan. Hmm. Now, what were you talking about there with James? Oh, well, just some cool things that'll be on today's episode. I see. Care to share specifics? I hear you're quite excited. Well, you know, I'm having Elijah Thomas from Kaiju Conversation on to yes. talk about Godzilla King of the Monsters, 1956, and... He's a very charming lad. I like Mr. Thomas. Uh, yes, and in fact, he says he's going to argue that it's the better movie. Say what you want about it, but it's a breath of fresh air after my last broadcast. <sighs> well, let me just start by saying, first of all, I like Mr. Thomas, but he's wrong, of course. And yes, I found your whinging over Super Monster quite entertaining. I must say, I'm gobsmacked, simply gobsmacked, that you've even lasted this long. I'm just as surprised as you are. Hmm, it seems as your reputation for boundless gumption is well deserved, Mr. Marchand. I can think of a few boffins who would love to use you to power a rocket ship into space. <laughs> Yes. I don't mean to be rude, sir, Mr. George, George Three, whatever you prefer, but what's the point of all of this? Well, that is a question that philosophers have pondered for centuries, actually. In fact, I sit in my office alone quite often, pondering the meaning of life over a nice glass of scotch, wondering why I'm even on this godforsaken island to begin. No, 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 I mean... Why are you here talking to me right now? Oh, of course. Simply to let you know that the board is chuffed with your performance thus far and will be listening quite intently to your broadcasts today. <laughs> yes, we're always listening, of course. <sighs> oh, and do remember to tell all the Radon fans on the island that the aviary will be reopening tomorrow after the renovations and inspections. Our tourist safety is, of course, paramount. 
Oh, hello there, James. I see you've got some white coffee at the break room. Strange how Mr. Marchand called you from his old mobile when you were just right down the hall. Hmm. Well, I guess it doesn't matter anymore. Toodaloo, gentlemen. And as they say in show business, break a leg. Why is he so chipper? <sighs> the things I do for you, Gary. Don't screw this up. Live from the KIJU studios and beautiful Ogasawara, this is the Monster Island Film Vault, episode 47. Godzilla, King of the Monsters, 1956, featuring Elijah Thomas. Hello, Kaiju lovers, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu. I am your host, the film curator here on Monster Island, Nate Marchand. Thank you for the reminder, Jimmy. Before we go any further, I have to do a little bit of a public service announcement for all of you. A little report here for all of the tourists here on Monster Island about some renovations that are being done on a very popular attraction here. This is a friendly reminder from your beneficent board of directors that the Monster Island aviary is still closed for renovations today, but will reopen tomorrow. Our hardworking staff is busy improving the safety systems after the unfortunate incident during the Ultraman Day festivities. We assure you, Rodan fans, that your favorite giant pteranodon is safe from Gauss's unwanted advances. We thank you for your patience as we continue to find a better way forward. Yes, that was a little bit harrowing, but I'm glad that the Ultraman Day festivities were not ruined by that because, whew... Gauss is uh, a little troublesome, to say the least. But with that out of the way, listeners and kaiju lovers, we are here to continue Godzilla Redux. In fact, we're going to be talking about something that, depending on who you talk to, people either love it or they hate it now. It's a little bit strange. But I have with me here today someone who has been a friend of the podcast for a very long time, but this is, believe it or not, his first trip to the island. And I'm very excited to have him here. He is the host of the Kaiju Conversation podcast, a physical media guru, the littlest gatekeeper, and yes, a Yeti lover. You know him, you love him, Elijah Thomas. Hey, everybody. I, you know, I wasn't expecting the Yeti part, even though I get, you know, I I, did, I brought my own mic, and it is my little Yeti nipple, yes. so, you know, it makes sense. Yes, you even put a little cover on it so that it completes the package. Yeah, it's always a hard Yeti nipple. That, yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, Jimmy, we may have to start banning guests from bringing their own microphones just to avoid borderline unsavory jokes, I think, at this point. We're running a family show here, Elijah. Nipples are real, okay? They're, everybody's yes. got them. Yes. And, and the movie is probably PG at worst. It's perfectly family-friendly. So you say. Anyway... <laughs> <laughs> what? How did you get to the island today? It seems like nobody ever does, oh, at least 
almost nobody ever does it the normal, regular way these days. You know, oh God, okay. Well, strap in, because it, it was a journey. So a few weeks ago, it might have been a few months ago, time kind of is blurry at this point. I was messaged by the board. They contacted me through some private ways, and they were like, hey, we need you on the podcast. We need you here. We want you to take some photos and just journey around the island. We want you to look into some possible gatekeeping rules and regulations for the guests. And at the time, my phone was horrible. So I told them I'll look into it, but right now my phone is awful and I can't take good photos. You've seen my photos of the kaiju roaming uh, the, mm -hmm. the streets. So, you know, I, I like to get them in their best moments and I didn't feel like I could treat them properly. But recently, just this last week, I had to get a new phone. And so I reached out to the board and I said, hey... Can I come now? I've got I've got a nice new phone, 4K camera. I am ready to go. And they said, it's sure. Not we'll... an Apple product, right? Correct. We no. don't do Apple here. Yeah. Not on Kaiju Conversation. Nope. Nope. Never. So then they said they will be in contact. So I don't know how classified this is. Uh -oh. So, you know, maybe you'll have to silence me here. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. They... Uh, hey, uh, hey, hey, Jimmy. Is Jet in there with you in case we need to hit that dump button? Oh, good. He came in today. Okay. So first they got me a plane ride to San Francisco. And I found out that, remember in Godzilla vs. Kong, the Apex facilities yes. had those like underground tunnels, right? Yes. So the board... Has a few of those. There's one in San Francisco, apparently. Yes. Uh, in fact, Luke Giaconetti a few months ago apparently found one in Florida, and it brought him here. Huh. Mm hmm Okay. And so they shipped me that way. They threw me in this, you know, those anti-gravity mm -hmm, mm -hmm. boxes, I mm -hmm. guess, yeah. with a bunch of food. Oh. It smelled horrible. Oh. It was absolutely awful. So lots of food, but it smells terrible. I'm yeah, I, of them. I'm pretty sure it was like some dead mechanulas or something. Ugh. Yeah, Did yeah. Did be bothered to cook them for you? I mean, I'm sure they're high in protein, but... Uh, I'm sure they taste like crickets. Crickets are pretty fun. <laughs> so <had> crickets? <laughs> yes, I was also paid to eat a live one, and I did it, so... I keep forgetting how old you are. <laughs> hey, you give me $20 to eat a cricket, I'll eat it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good Lord. <laughs> oh, you did that once too? Oh, great. You two can have a, some fun together about that. Yeah, Jimmy's a pretty smart individual. I'll, I'll give him that. Yeah. Just and, don't try and, to eat Megalon. That might not go very well. You know, I... I don't really want any more iron in my diet, so I'll stay far away from him. So they shipped me that way, and I got here like three days ago, right? Mm -hmm. And first they had me take some photos of some of the exotic kaiju, mm -hmm. um, even the, uh, the giant lizard. Mm -hmm. uh, I got to see him in his natural habitat, mm -hmm. and, you know, it was pretty cool. And then I guess there was a little problem with security and uh, there was an infiltration of a red bamboo agent. What? What? Yeah. How did I not hear about this? Yeah, this was all highly classified information. Hot dang. 
And he actually hit me on the head and knocked me out. What? And he took me into this this bunker on the island. Uh oh. And he told me that if I do not take photos of Ebra eating humans so they can use it to terrify people, uh -oh. that I would be fed to him. Oh, mother! Yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't ready to be... Uh, I mean, I, I love eating chicken on a stick, but I wasn't ready to become that, oh, so... man. Hey, Ozaki, I know you're probably listening to this, but you and your mutant boys need to go blow up this bunker immediately. Just say Yeah. Yeah, but, you know, so I, I played along, and I was like, okay, I'll take a photo of Ebra for you guys. And when we got there, I used the flash to blind the guy. Oh! And then I contacted some of the uh, security people on the island. Oh, so you got to talk to Captain Gordon? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh! I learned some fun facts. He's actually a huge fan of Yeti Giant of the 20th Century. Is uh, he? Wow. Mm -hmm. Okay. He told me he took this girl out on a date, and he actually showed her that movie, and she was quite liked it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was quite the interesting story he told me. Huh. And so they arrested this red bamboo guy. Then I was like, you know, I, I, I want to take a break before I have to come and talk to Nathan and then, you know, deal with Jimmy and Damn. see Jet. So I, uh, the board has some, some rooms for people to stay in. Mm -hmm. So I, I went to one of those because this trip was very private mm -hmm. because, you know, I... And of course, the board would give you the best rooms on the island being the littlest gatekeeper. I mean, right. that allows you certain privileges, apparently. Right. And I started some, some ideas for what they could do. I had an idea of separating the Monsterverse monsters to their own small section. Oh. And only fake fans could go see them. Oh, because, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, so they got to move the Mutos and some of the other Titans, apparently. We, we got to send them over there. Right. And I, I don't know if they like that idea. It was uh, apparently very expensive to do that. Mm -hmm. So they might get rid of me as a consultant. But we'll have to see. I thought it was a pretty good idea, but I don't know. After that, I started watching some movies. Quick question, Nathan. Yes. Why is it you do not have Demi King on the island? Probably because uh, he's not... Well, he might not be on the main site. He's probably on the beta site because that's where they keep the monsters where they're trying to evaluate how good of an attraction that they'll be on the main island mm. with the resort and all of that. So I see. We probably have him, just not on the main site. I'll have to look into that. Mostly uh, because there has been a lot of demand for Demi King. Heck, I haven't even acquired the Demi King movie for the film vault yet. I see. I'm still working on that. It's a little harder to come by than I was expecting. Yeah, it is It is a little difficult. Well, if he ever comes on the island, I'd like to come back because I'd like to harass him. Because I don't like his movie. Oh, you don't? You um, don't? Oh, no. No. <laughs> perhaps I should have perhaps I should tell the board that you have to come back if and when I get around to Demiking. And uh may I mean I'd be down again. I just don't want to be abducted. Um, I, that I can understand. That I can understand. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but Demiking oh. aside, <laughs> is that your is that everything that happened? You had quite the adventure, obviously. You know, when I was knocked out, 
I don't know how long, but I, I remember seeing this weird image in my head before I woke up, and it was these people talking, and like it was all muffled, so I don't know what they were saying, and I don't know where I was. It might have been in the bunker, might not have been, but it was weird. Maybe I was going crazy. Maybe. Yeah, it's all that time you've spent on Discord. It's rotting your brain. But I got some sleep because of them knocking me out, so I'm not too upset. (laughs) Pretty fun. Yeah. But anyway, (laughs) all that excitement aside, (laughs) you are here today to, like I said, to continue Godzilla Redux. And even though this is technically kind of jumping ahead a little bit chronologically, I think it is a disservice to not talk about this immediately after Godzilla 54, which is. Godzilla King of the Monsters from 1956, not 2019, 1956. I covered 2019 a few months ago with OmniViewer and Brandon from Up From the Depths, which has been one of my most popular episodes, I might add. (laughs) So, So if you want to hear about that King of the Monsters, go listen to that episode. The way I keep them separate is the 2019 one is Godzilla King of the Monsters. Yeah, but the '56 one is Godzilla, King of the Monsters, because it's got it, that exclamation it, it, point. Got a, yeah, it has an exclamation point, and it has a comma and not a colon. But only grammar nerds like me pay attention to stuff like that. That is true, <laughs> and it's better. Ooh, the hot takes beginning. I forgot. That's the that's your other thing. You are the king of hot takes. <laughs> That's why you're the littlest gatekeeper. <laughs> it's not hot takes, it's the right takes. Ooh! There's a difference. Anyway, for those who don't know, I'll give you a quick primer on this. King of the Monsters 1956 is the Americanized, can't it really call it dubbed, even though there's some dubbing in it. It's the Americanized version of the original 1954 Godzilla. The movie was re-edited, and then some of the footage was deleted. I think about 60 minutes of the original footage was kept. And then Mm -hmm. about, I think it's about, I want to say about 30 minutes or so, well, about 20 or 30 minutes of new footage with Raymond Burr as Steve Martin. No, not the comedian. (laughs) This was 20 years before he got popular. (laughs) 20 years before SNL. They inserted him into this, and he is observing all of the events of Godzilla 1954. And there's a lot of reasons for why this was done, and there's a lot of implications with this movie, how it was made, and we're going to definitely talk about the effect that this movie had compared to the 1954 film as well. There's a lot of things to talk about, but I do know for a lot of people, I mean, this was their first exposure to Godzilla's, their first exposure to this original movie was in this Americanized version, because even though the original Japanese cut was shown a few times in the U.S., it was not anywhere close to widely available in America until 2004, Mm -hmm. when it got a special screening tour across the United States. Mm-hmm. And then which, it was released on DVD by Classic Media. Which, there, there's an alternate timeline, because before we were recording, we talked to you about the Criterion set. And Criterion in the 90s was actually going to release the original film on Laserdisc. Hot day. Uh, they were going to do that one, Godzilla's Revenge, King of the Monsters. I think Raids Again was... The, it, it, I think it was all the Scimitar ones. So Monster Zero, Revenge, Terror of Mechagodzilla, in 54 and 56. 
and they were all going to be on laser discs. So there's an alternate reality where Criterion released Godzilla many years prior, and it was the original. Wow, that's crazy. Oh, how interesting would that have been? That would, man. It, it, that tells you that, believe it or not, apparently Criterion really loves Godzilla. People th- seem to think they don't have much interest in these pop cultural films, but sounds like, for what I understand, especially at, when they put out the big box set that you and I did a video about on, on MIFV Max, they are into this stuff. Sometimes I think they just like to pretend that they only like arty movies. <laughs> <laughs> for like right, better, and you know, I mean, air quotes, the, artsy movies. Yeah, when when Criterion released King Kong, they went down in history for the first release of a film with an audio commentary. Mm-hmm. So, so Criterion has they they've had giant monsters in their history for a long time, and I think people have just kind of I I don't know if it's Criterion or if it's the people surrounding them mm-hmm. that have built up this falsehood of. We only watch highbrow art. Yes. And I, I will say this criterion doesn't help like their booklet for 54, the original release, yeah. is literally a guy saying you should like this film because it's about World War II yeah. and it's metaphorical and that's all that's it, – it's trying to yeah, justify Hoberman. it. Hoberman. Yeah. And I, I thought that was a little ridiculous. <laughs> I can understand that. Uh, But speaking of World War II, I do want to bring up, because I did this with the Godzilla 54 episode to help set the stage, give a little bit of context. I'm not going to go into copious amounts of detail. This isn't a history podcast, but I will bring up historical details when needed. And since the production of King of the Monsters 56 does relate back a lot to American and Japanese relations, there was another aspect of the war and the occupation that I wanted to bring up. And it, like I said, it could be entirely its own subject. So I'm just going to go over a few quick details. And that was the War Crimes Tribunal. Have you heard anything about the War Crimes Tribunal in all of your schooling and researching, Mr. Elijah? I've done a little bit of research and between listening to you and, you know, Steve Rifle and David Callett and Ed Gutchiseski. I've I've got a good idea, but I I'm not like a history buff about it. Yeah. Well, like I said, here's a few quick little details for you. So this was a series of trials held for Japanese war criminals right after World War II. It was held at Ichigaya Court, which was formerly the Imperial Japanese Army headquarters. Interestingly, it lasted from April 29th, 1945, to November 12th, 1948. And there were three classes of war crimes that were brought up during this trial with all of the people who were being tried. And that was Class A, which were reserved for those who participated in a joint conspiracy to start and wage war and were brought against those in the highest decision-making bodies. Class B, which were reserved for those who committed, quote-unquote, conventional atrocities or crimes against humanity. And then Class C which were reserved for those in, quote, the planning, ordering, and authorization or failure to prevent such transgressions at higher levels in the command structure, okay? Mm -hmm. Despite disagreement among the allies as to whom to try and how to do it, on, interestingly, September 11th, 1945, a week after the Japanese surrender, General Douglas MacArthur issued arrests of 39 suspects, most of whom were members of General Hideki Tojo's war cabinet. Tojo was in charge of the imperial military in Japan during the war, by the way. Tojo tried to commit suicide, but he was revived by American doctors. That just sounds so crazy. He tried to get out of it. 
MacArthur's charter for the proceedings followed a similar model as those used during the Nuremberg trials, which was where they tried German war criminals over in Europe. However, things were still pretty different if you start diving even deeper into this. It was presided over by 12 judges, nine of whom were from nations that signed the instrument of surrender for the war. And this included John P. Higgins, the chief justice of the Massachusetts Supreme Court. He ended up replacing a guy named Major General Myron C. Kramer, who was a JAG officer for the U.S. Army. The defendants were indicted as making a scheme of conquest that, quote, contemplated and carried out murdering, maiming, and ill-treating prisoners of war and civilian internees, forcing them into labor under inhumane conditions, plundering public and private property, wantonly destroying cities, towns, and villages beyond any justification of military necessity, perpetrating mass murder, rape, pillage, brigandage torture, and other barbaric cruelties upon the helpless civilian population of the overrun countries, end quote. So that's the basic charge for all of them. Now, the prosecution relied on what was called the doctrine of command responsibility, which is the hierarchical responsibility for war crimes. The prosecution sought to prove that, quote, the war crimes were systematic or widespread. The accused knew that troops were committing atrocities and the accused had power or authority to stop the crimes, end quote. As such, it presented the Tanaka Memorial, a document said to have been written by Prime Minister Tanaka Giichi to Emperor Hirohito, which they argued bound the accused together in a, quote, common plan or conspiracy, end quote, to commit, quote, crimes against peace, end quote. In other words, the conspiracy lasted for 18 years from 1927 to 1945 when the war ended. It was considered legitimate at the time, but there's a lot of disagreement with scholars, and some of them even call it a masterful anti-Japanese hoax, which is quite interesting. Now, as you would expect, these defendants did have lawyers as defense attorneys. In fact, they were represented by 100 attorneys, three-quarters of which were Japanese and one-quarter American. Might have to talk to my friend Raymond Martin about that. He's the resident lawyer here on the island. Him and his paralegal, Gary. They probably know a lot about this stuff. Perhaps I should have consulted with them a little bit about this. This is actually older research that I did in my former podcast life. So, the defense argued that the charges of, quote, crimes against peace, end quote, and the, quote, undefined concepts of conspiracy and aggressive war had not been established in international law, so the tribunal was contradicting accepted legal procedure by retroactively prosecuting defendants for violating law that didn't exist. They argued there was no basis in an international law for holding individuals responsible for acts of state or for holding individuals responsible for failing to prevent breaches of law and war crimes committed by others, which they termed negative criminality. Basically, they're saying you can't hold individuals responsible for the actions of a governing body, was their Mm -hmm. defense. And they even went so far as to say that the Allies' wartime violations of international law would have to be examined if they're going to go this route. The tribunal spent six months drafting You want to talk about nuts, Elijah? A 1,781-page judgment. And upon reading it, five of the 11 justices released separate opinions outside of the court on the whole thing. So there's a lot of information you could find about this. Mm -hmm. The verdicts and the sentences were confirmed by MacArthur on November 24th, 1948, two days after meeting with the Allied Control Commission for Japan. 
Now, clemency was suggested, but he didn't do it. And this created tension between Japan and the Allies until the 1950s when the Allies agreed to release the last of the prisoners. So like I said, lots of tension. A lot of the scholarship on King of the Monsters, there isn't quite as much on King of the Monsters as there is Godzilla 54, but a lot of the scholarship talks about that cultural environment. This being made just over a decade since the war and how Mm -hmm. there was still underlying tension, perhaps even prejudice between the cultures, particularly in America. Because I think one of the, I'm trying to remember which com, I think it was Khaled's commentary even said that some of the audience members who would have gone to see King of the Monsters may have killed Japanese soldiers during World War II. That's the nutty thing to think about. Here's how everything played out for all of those accused. One defendant was found mentally unfit for trial, so the charges were dropped. Two defendants died of natural causes during the trial. Six defendants, including Tojo, who, by the way, was also the mastermind behind the Pearl Harbor attack, were sentenced to death by hanging for war crimes, crimes against humanity, and crimes against peace. One defendant was sentenced to death by hanging for war crimes and crimes against humanity. And then those executions were performed at Sugamo Prison in Ikebukuro on December 23rd, 1948. MacArthur defied the wishes of President Truman by barring photography so as not to embarrass and antagonize the Japanese people. I actually think that was a very gracious move on his Mm -hmm. part. He instead brought four members of the Allied Council to act as official witnesses. So there's no photographic record of these executions. 16 defendants were sentenced to life imprisonment. Three died in prison, while the other 13 were paroled between 1954 and 1956, interestingly. Hmm. (laughs) Foreign Minister Shigenori Togo was sentenced to 20 years imprisonment and died in prison in 1949. And then Foreign Minister Mamoru Shigemitsu was sentenced to seven years. So these were government officials. There is some criticisms to be had, obviously. Some say the U.S. funded the tribunal and held the role of chief prosecutor, which many argue made it impossible for them to uphold the necessary impartiality for such an undertaking. This makes the tribunal look like a means of dispensing victor's justice. Justice Delphin from the Philippines was one of the POWs who had been part of the Bataan Death March, which was a very nasty thing that happened during World War II. So the defense sought to have him removed because they thought he couldn't be objective which makes sense. And then Justice Powell argued that excluding Western colonialism and the atomic bombings from the list of war crimes and not having judges from the vanquished country showed the, quote, failure of the tribunal to provide anything other than an opportunity for the victors to retaliate, end quote. Complicating matters, there was no international law pertaining to aerial combat at the time because aerial combat was really came into fruition during World War II. Justice Powell published a dissenting opinion where he said he found the prosecution's case that the Japanese government conspired to engage in aggressive war and subjugate other nations to be weak. And that's just a taste of the things that you could go look up about the War Crimes Tribunal. There's, like I said, it's a whole episode unto itself. <laughs> that's, just, right. that's just a taste of it. But that's the environment that Terry Morrison uh, and all the guys who got their hands on Godzilla 54 when they were trying to make it, I guess for a ba- lack of a better way to put it, palatable for an American audience. And I think that's where a lot of our discussion I th- should go right now was what they did to make this film marketable. Right. 
And I think that this is kind of to jump off of that. From the research I gathered, I don't think their means... I mean, one of the editors who was interviewed in the Rifle and Gajazeski commentary even said this. A lot of their decisions were not politically charged. No. As, I mean, let's be real here. This was a film purchased solely to make money. Mm -hmm. They saw potential in a market that at the time was building up... Uh, by 1956, you had box office hits like King Kong in 52, Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, them all by the same company year after year, making huge amounts of money. Mm-hmm. You had some of the Harryhausen stuff at that point. It came from beneath the sea. You had War of the Worlds, George Powell's movie mm-hmm. that won him an Oscar for best special effects. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The atomic monster genre was really blossoming at the time a lot of it fueled by american spheres of nuclear annihilation this is when the cold war was really ramping up and people were uh, we're both way too young to remember any of this but people were doing drills at schools to prepare them for a nuclear attack Mm -hmm. it was very real and imminent to them right you know, I mean, but it was uh, a fear that was intangible. It wasn't like with Godzilla 54 that's based on you know, a fear that is stems from a real-life event. This is a fear of the unknown for Americans. And the Red Scare was another huge part of 50s and uh, eventually uh, 80s. A lot of films between 19—I'd say the end of World War II and the end of the Cold War mm-hmm. were very politically charged with— the fear of communism in America, the fear of, like you said, uh, nuclear annihilation. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of fear, but as you said, none of it was personal experience. It was all hypotheticals. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the town I live in, there is a nuclear bunker <laughs> in the city hall. So, yeah, uh, definitely a holdover from that. So they were trying to tap into that because there's like, oh, it's an atomic monster movie. It's kind of funny how it all kind of comes full circle where you had Beast from 20,000 Fathoms that inspires Godzilla. And then when Godzilla comes to America, they retool it to be like the atomic monster genre that you know, that spawned, you know, that mm-hmm. you know, Godzilla was tapping into in a very Japanese sort of way. Right. So, yes, as you said, one of the producers went out of his way to say that it was Richard Kay. And someone asked him, was it politically motivated what you did? He said, no, we weren't interested in politics. Believe me, we only wanted to make a movie we could sell. At that time, mm-hmm. the American public wouldn't have gone for a movie with an all-Japanese cast. That's why we did what we did. We didn't really change the story. We just gave it an American point of view, end quote. Mm-hmm. And relatedly, someone asked Honda about it. This seems like a very Honda sort of response. He said, quote, recently I was told by an American magazine writer who came to Japan to do research that what was done to my film was rude. He was concerned I might be infuriated by it. <laughs> it sounds like Honda wasn't all that aware of what was going on with this version mm-hmm. of the movie. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, producers, and Richard K is a pro- was a producer, like you said, producers look at th- opportunities That'll make them the biggest bang for their buck. They're not worried about quality or really anything like that. They're just solely concerned, can I make money off of this if I invest in it? Mm -hmm. And the answer is yes, you can. Mm -hmm. They were trying to make it fit into that market. And 
America wasn't the only place this was done. Apparently, there are other variants that you can find. There's a French variant. There's a Filipino variant. Mm-hmm. That Tokyo they, 1970. Yeah, Tokyo 1970. Uh, I think it was 1960, actually. Maybe. Yeah, let me look that up. I've got a note here about that from uh, John LeMay's books. Tokyo 1960. And they okay. edited in new footage with Filipino actors. Mm-hmm. And then Cosilla, of course. Yes, the Italian version. Mm-hmm. That was I, I weirdly think, colorized. I think the French one is King of the Monsters, but dubbed, I yeah. think. Mm-hmm. Funny thing, there was actually a long-standing rumor that Raymond Burr went to Japan and filmed all of mm-hmm. his scenes, and he didn't. <laughs> right. I just think it's funny. Oh, interestingly, also, King of the Monsters wasn't the original title they wanted to go with. They were originally going to call it Godzilla the Sea Monster or Godzilla the Sea Beast. Mm-hmm. Probably good they didn't because one of the lasting legacies of this movie is the moniker King of the Monsters. That's an American invention, and Toho's run with it ever since. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite things, you've seen Godzilla and other movie Monsters, right? The 98 yes. documentary. So one of the things that has always that like greatly impacted me with that when I watched it on VHS a long time ago was the narrator said, and was one of his first lines, Godzilla is truly the king of the monsters. Mm-hmm. That title, that subtitle that Terry Morris and, and Richard Kay and Joseph E. Levine gave him, King of the Monsters, was and is timeless, mm-hmm. that will forever be a part of Godzilla's history, and no other monster will ever take that title away from him. Yeah, even King Kong, apparently, because it was meant mm-hmm. as a little bit of a, a jab at King Kong. Joseph Levine, another one of the producers, even started the ad campaign for this movie by saying that Godzilla made King Kong look like Peter Pan. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the uh, the UK poster that says, makes King Kong look like a midget, I believe is the quote on the bottom <laughs> oh of it. Oh my the- gosh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, Jimmy. I don't think that's going to get us in trouble with anybody, but... I'm quoting, I'm quoting a poster. Yeah, yeah. Sure. It's historically accurate. Yes, very, very true. Very true. I mean, we, we can't just go erasing some language that we don't necessarily like, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's just not good, revisionist. But uh, <laughs> so, yeah, there wasn't any politics involved with this. And the thing that I like about this with the retooling that they did. I like to think of this as a parallel story to Godzilla 54 because for the most part, they actually gel with one another. But what you're seeing is this is an American who was there in 54 witnessing everything and he's explaining it to everybody else. The 54 version is very immersive because it was made by the culture in which it takes place. But one of the things that that King of the Monsters 56 does that is very effective is that you very much get the sense that you... Because that's basically why they invented the Steve Martin character was that he's a surrogate for the audience. He's an outsider and he's witnessing everything as an outsider. So some of the omissions that are in the King of the Monsters version seem like things that you would expect to be omitted anyway because I'm not entirely sure. And feel free to disagree with me, listeners. I'm not sure that an American reporter in the 1950s would be as concerned with a lot of the things like the politics and all of that, the more localized politics of Japan at that moment in time, which is why a lot of things like the argument that happens between a lot of the members of the diet gets omitted. Steve Martin probably wouldn't necessarily understand all of the cultural implications with that because he's going there as an outsider. Mm-hmm. 
So I don't see any problem. I think that these can exist together. And honestly, I'm a little sad that even though Criterion has released this version with the 54 original twice now, it gets relegated to a bonus feature. And I feel like that's a little bit of a disservice. Mm-hmm. This might be where we dive into the sub versus dub discussion. I think we have to. Yeah, at we this have point. To at this point. Because dubbing has a bad rep. I think Khaled even said in his book, you know, half jokingly, you know, dubbing equals bad dubbing. Mm-hmm. We crack jokes about it in the fandom. People who watch martial arts movies crack jokes about it. It's There's a weird kind of charm to it, but it can ruin some things. Right. But the thing of it is, at the time, dubbing a movie was considered an honor because it was expensive mm-hmm. and it took a lot of time, but it was an investment on the part of the foreign distributors to give the movie a wider audience because mm-hmm. there are just aren't nearly as many people who are interested in seeing a subtitled movie at the movie theater. Okay. They knew that there was an interest in Japanese film because of Rashomon. Danny DeMana and I talked a bit about Rashomon in the previous episode, how that introduced the world to Japanese cinema. But Rashomon made $200,000 over two years in America. That mm-hmm. was the benchmark. It was a very low benchmark. Even Kinema Junpo, which is a big movie publication over in Japan, they said, and we know why, it's because of subtitles. People are just not as interested in reading subtitles. And they really mm-hmm. wanted Japan to export a movie that would have great cultural significance and impact. And then they got it with Godzilla. Right. And I mean, Toho was showing the original print of Godzilla in L.A. for two years before it even hit theaters. Mm-hmm. I reached out to Keith Aiken a while ago, and I talked to him a bit about the distribution of these films. And he brought up that Toho, they opened up an L.A. branch Essentially, they opened it in 1954, and that was because Japanese films, this is after Rashomon, even though Rashomon was like the big film yes. uh, that brought Japanese cinema over to the West. Toho had three of this, their largest films of all time. You had Seven Samurai, which is also one of the longest films at the time. You had Mushi uh, Miyamito. I I probably butchered that. It also came out in 1954. And Gojira. Mm -hmm. Those were Toho's three most expensive films at the time. You had an audience growing, because Rashomon, I believe, won in the Oscar Mm -hmm. when it hit the States. So Toho wanted to bring their films over. Seven Samurai was hailed as a great film. I think it got an art house release mm-hmm. during this time, subtitled. But again, it was, you know, subtitled. It wasn't very big. Mm-hmm. And naturally, subtitling isn't big. Are you into anime at all? Oh, real yes. quick? Okay. Did you see the Demon Slayer movie? I have not yet. Okay. Do you know if that was subtitled or dubbed? I think it was. I think it's probably gotten both treatments at this point. Do you know what it got in theaters by a any lot. chance? <laughs> well, it did well in America. It was a was giant it, hit in Japan. Was it subtitled in America or was it dubbed? I'm not entirely sure. Give me a second and I will look that Okay. Up. While you're doing that, my whole point is uh, look at Shin Godzilla. That movie was subtitled by Funimation and it got a limited release here in the States. It did well. 
but it was limited. It, you know, very select theaters showed. I think it made. Yes, it was dubbed when released in America. And I heard it did really well. I think it was actually top 10 mm-hmm. for a little bit mm-hmm. in the U.S. box office start. Shin Godzilla never hit that point. No, and that's it, a was, Godzilla it, was, it was successful in its limited run. In fact, right. some theaters actually extended their showing of Shin Godzilla by a week. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it didn't hit top 10 of the charts. It didn't make a whole lot of money, and it was not publicized that much, if I recall correctly. Demon Slayer, I saw ads on TV for that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I heard about it, and I heard it beat some of the films in the top 10 for U.S. box office, and it was dubbed. Dubs naturally bring people in because it's in their native language. It's a localization thing. Mm-hmm. When King of the Monsters was brought back to Japan, they subtitled the film (laughs) in Japanese. That had to have been... I wish I could have been a fly on the wall when that happened just to see how people reacted to that because that would have been just so weird because they didn't subtitle the Japanese dialogue. They only subtitled the English dialogue, which is something we'll get into in a bit about how King of the Monsters is kind of a weird hybrid. Mm -hmm. But because the scenes in the movie were re-edited, the Japanese actors are making references to things that technically haven't happened in the new chronology Mm -hmm. of the movie, which I'm sure just... And then the English-speaking actors are reporting on it and saying that those actors are saying completely different things. So I must have confused them. (laughs) Right. And this is where my point of how King of the Monsters is in some ways better than the original. This is where it stems from. A lot of people believe that if a film is dubbed, it is naturally inferior. Mm -hmm. I've seen a ton of people, especially my Discord server, who hate on dubs. They complain about them all the time. Everything is bad against them. But David Khaled also makes this point in not only his King of the Monsters commentary, but his Ghidra, the three-headed monster one. Mm, Which is also great. Khaled's commentaries are just amazing. I I agree. They're informative and and highly entertaining. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. And and so what it comes down to is a dub localizes a film for everybody to enjoy. And what a dub does is sometimes it makes it a little worse and it sometimes it makes it a little better. In Ghidra's case, it fixes editing issues. Mm-hmm. I would argue it is a superior version of the film that even Honda replicated in his Champion Festival cut uh, about five years later. Well, you know, Jimmy, you are a smart person sometimes, and and that is one of those instances because Ghidorah, the three-headed, or Ghidra, Ghidra, the three-headed monster, is the superior cut. Ooh, like I said, king of the hot takes here. Anyway. But in King of the Monsters' case, it's a, like you said, it's a Western viewpoint of the film. I think it quickens the pace up a bit. It does. It moves a little bit briskly. Weirdly enough, though, Godzilla actually appears a little bit later in the Americanized version than in the Japanese. It's kind of funny. Actually, I don't know if you saw it, but I actually, uh, while being bored today on the island, I made a tweet, and it's about something in the film, and it's directly referring to King of the Monsters. Yes, I I read that. So I'll go ahead and kind of reiterate it here. In the film, and both cuts do this, admittedly, but this film is the only one that really hones in on the mythological aspect, but leaves it a myth. 
Mm-hmm. Unlike the MonsterVerse that has to explain it, 54 does not explain why Godzilla exists and does not explain the myth. Mm-hmm. Which is why I, I love this scene in particular. Um, I'm actually going to pull it up so I can properly state what I said. But it's in reference to the music, the ritual from Odo Island mm-hmm. specifically. Mm-hmm. But essentially, in the film, it starts off with Burr talking about the shipping accidents. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you see that and you see the destruction of Tokyo, and this is all told in flashback. So I think even it, because it's told in flashback, it makes it more ominous because Burr should know what he's saying. He does not go into detail about this one aspect. So after they decide to go to an island, Odo Island, to see if they can figure out the shipping disasters, first it's established that they're on the quote-unquote cursed waters mm-hmm. of, you know, the d- disappearances have happened. And I don't remember that being in the original version. You can fact check me. <laughs> there you go, Jimmy. There's an assignment for you. There we go. But I don't recall it being in the original version where they say they're on the same waters. Mm-hmm. Now, I know they insinuate that, you know, at any moment they could burst into flames, but I don't think they say it. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really cool. Yeah, the how- way this version is structured is that it's more like a film noir. Some people have argued that it might have been influenced a bit by Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which came out. I think the same year or close to the same year. Have you seen Invasion of the Body Snatchers? It's been a few years, but yes. Yeah, where that one also was told in flashback. Mm -hmm. But they say it's really, it's film noir with the narration and the starting in media res and there's this apocalyptic atmosphere right from the beginning and then it's told in flashback until it catches up to what was the present at when we're introduced to Steve Martin. Whereas the original weirdly enough, actually had a more linear story structure and was more like a mystery where everything was slowly being unfolded as the film progressed. And honestly, I don't, in terms of structure, I think both have their merits. and I think both are very legitimate ways of doing it. Although what's interesting is that more movies, particularly in America, were emulating the linear structure that Godzilla 54 did and very few went with the structure that King of the Monsters took. <laughs> right. It's weird. But one of my favorite things about the way they're telling it, and this dives right into the sub versus dub thing, when they get to Odo Island and they listen into the ritual stuff and you hear Burr talking, mm-hmm. it does not translate what the islanders are saying. So it feels alien. It does. That was one of the moments where, like I said, you feel like the outsider because you, mm-hmm. you know, because this is all strange and weird. And you know, I think even in the original, the Japanese characters still thought it was weird because to them, Odo Island is a bit, for lack of a better way to put it, backward compared mm-hmm. to modern Japan. Yeah, it was, it was very, very much a uh, quote unquote primitive compared to what they were used to in Japan, the mainland specifically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But like, I think this is a part of the dub and it's not what he actually says, but you know, you've got Burr's translator and then it cuts to the old man telling the story and the only words you understand is Godzilla. Uh-huh. And then, you know, you can see Burr does a great job with his acting. He gives oh, it its his all. performance in, is great in this. And unlike a lot of other American actors who appeared in Toho science fiction films, looking at you, Tamblin. 
<laughs> Burr <laughs> always looked back on his time and connection with Godzilla very fondly. In fact, he mm -hmm. even said, I would have done everything I did in that movie for basically free if I could have done some profit sharing. If, I, if right. I knew what was going to come of it, he would have done that instead. And he was a very staunch defender of the film and of Godzilla. And even after he became famous a year later as Perry Mason on TV, when the time came around, they did the same thing in the 80s, New World Pictures with Return of Godzilla. He jumped at the chance to do mm -hmm. it. In fact... It was because of him that they didn't disrespect that movie more than they did. <laughs> he held them back and said, I won't do it unless you do these things and you're more respectful to the material. Right. And honestly, Burr is one of the highlights of that version. I know there are people who defend it. And yeah, I grew up on Godzilla 1985, but I got to admit to you now, seeing it as an adult and knowing a bit more of the background, I like it a heck of a lot less now. But Burr remains a highlight, like I said. Mm-hmm. But that's an episode for another day. <laughs> yeah, and Burr's narration is, you know, it's typical that you have, you know, narration in 50s B-movies, but it's always that, and then came the H-bomb, yes. and it rose into the atmosphere, and the dark cloud yeah. southered the earth, you know, but Burr, it's like a radio broadcast. Yes, he, yeah. it's not the hyperbolic over-the-top narration, the sensationalized narration. It's very it's very grounded. It's very much like a reporter. Mm -hmm. And honestly, feeds into the documentary style that Honda was going for in the original movie. In some ways, it kind of accentuates it. Right. And I'm going to jump ahead here in what I posted. And one of my favorite lines in this, I think, hammers home this entire scene at of Odo Island was what Burr said at the very end. Mm -hmm. I'm going to quote him here. It was more than wind, rain, and lightning. Much more. I wasn't just sure what it was. Nobody was sure. No one except the natives. And they were positive. They said it was Godzilla. And the music, the sound mixing there is really good. That scene gives me chills because of how he delivers it. It's very ominous, especially with the photography going on on screen with the destroyed helicopter. And during that sequence, Terry Morrison company added in extra footsteps and roars to really establish the monster was there. And of course, during the sequence at the very beginning, after the ritual scene, it fades out and fades into Raymond Burr laying in a tent. And you just hear this thunderous sound coming over them as they start looking out the tent in confusion. Like, what's going on? What is the sound? And then boom, boom. And then the, the footsteps. And, and I really thought that that scene, if anybody complains about the movie, there's definitely parts about the film you can complain about. But that scene alone, I think, encompasses, I can't speak. Encompasses. Yeah. What Honda wanted as Godzilla is a looming threat. Mm -hmm. And with how they mix the sound, the way I kind of read it was, and, you know, here we're going to get into more politics. So thank you very much, Nathan. <laughs> the, the beginning of it is a bunch of people just on an island. They don't expect anything to come and attack them and then one moment they hear a thunderous sound from above and then they're confused what's going on and then the sound gets louder and louder and then boom and you know that happens multiple times 
and then the city is destroyed by this unfathomable unknown force mm-hmm. that nobody really saw. One, you know, it's insinuated that one person might have seen the monster, but most of the people died. And in a way, I almost feel like it could have been a, you know, an homage to Hiroshima or Nagasaki. Mm-hmm. But even more than that, the whole sequence is about people from the quote unquote modern world coming to an island only for that island to be destroyed. And they take the natives and bring them to the mainland, just like what happened with the Castle Bravo incident or testings, where they took the islanders from Bikini Atoll and moved them. So they can test on that island and it got destroyed. So in a way, I wonder if that was something that they considered with that scene. And I, I feel like Terry Morse, even if it was unintentional, really hit home with that scene. Mm. I would have to I agree might, with you there. I might have read that horribly wrong. <laughs> hey, it all comes down to interpretation with a lot of this. And in fact, I think Khaled even said, because he mentioned that the anti-nuclear theme text was removed with this, but the subtext is still there. And the thing about subtext is you still have to make an interpretation of the subtext. You know, Some people looked at this and they say that this was the neutered version, that it was a disservice. I've read critics and scholars who said that. Other people said that this is anti-American. I don't think it's anti-American, and I don't think the American filmmakers who were making King of the Monsters were trying to remove anti-American sentiment. They've said over and over, it's like, we were just trying to make it marketable. That's all Mm -hmm. we were doing. But even saying it's anti-American requires interpretation. So I don't see it as anti-American. Call me silly if you want to, but I just don't. So these critics who are insinuating all of these nefarious things... I don't see it. I mean, there's even some that made the argument that the fact that they treat the Japanese, you know, like when they re-edit the scenes and and then they're making references to things that haven't happened yet. They're saying, oh, that's mildly racist because they're just treating the Japanese dialogue like it's the adults on (laughs) Charlie Brown's going, and then the kids just respond to it. I mean, it's almost like me and Jimmy on the show because apparently his microphone makes him sound like a droid. See? We know what he said. But apparently nobody outside of the broadcast room knows what he actually said. And the fact that there's this continuity hiccup where they find the sailor who survived the first attack, but then Steve Martin says, oh, he died, but then we see him later Mm -hmm. on the island in the sequence that you're talking about. And some say, well, they were just banking on the fact that Americans aren't going to recognize Asian faces. My retort to that would actually be, it's been scientifically proven that people have a harder time distinguishing and recognizing faces from races that are not their own. Doesn't matter what mm-hmm. race you are. I mean, right. there's even a joke about it in Rush Hour, isn't there? You know, one, one of the Rush Hour movies. Oh, you know, you all look alike. Yeah. <laughs> Right. It's said to Jackie Chan, you know, because his buddy, the what's the what was that guy's name again? Chris Tucker. Chris Tucker accidentally punches him instead of one of the Asian bad guys that they're fighting. <laughs> and he's like, why'd you hit me? <laughs> <laughs> and he says, oh, you know, you all look alike, you know? <laughs> and that's commenting on the fact that it's just a fact. You have to work a little bit harder because you're used to seeing certain kinds of faces and being able to recognize those distinguishing marks more quickly because you're more used to it. Now, you can train yourself to recognize distinguishing features for faces that are not your own race. It can be done. It's just something that comes with practice. So I don't attribute that to racism at all. It's just a natural human predilection. 
Now, another thing to also consider is when Godzilla King of the Monsters came out, there was no such thing as reruns or Blu-rays or DVDs or Laserdiscs or VHSs. So they weren't planning on people re-watching this film hundreds of times and analyzing things. I'm sure if this was your first time watching the movie, you would probably not pick up on the fact it's the same actor. And that happens for any film like that. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a person of a different race or not, you can cast a person as the same actor and you may not recognize it. Yeah. I will say that there might have been a slight banking on. Yeah, I mean, obviously with the Japanese language, there was. Yeah, there was. I think there was a little bit of a banking on the American audience's ignorance, possibly, but I prefer to look at what the actual intent of the scene was as opposed to how it was done, if that makes any sense. Right. Because I think intent is more important. And when it comes down to it, the reason they did that is because they were given that amount of footage, and they were going to cut that thing up as much as they had to to make it fit so they didn't have to pay to film new stuff. And unlike what some people would say, the people who were working on this, Terry Morse and all of those other guys, and there's a lot of interviews if you go and look for the commentaries and everything, They all liked the 1954 version. Terry Morse even kept the translated copy of the original script that he was given while he was working on. He kept it intact for years. He liked the movie. He liked it a lot. So this wasn't a bunch of people who who only saw this as some sort of a commodity that they could butcher and exploit. That wasn't what they were trying to do. Mm -hmm. It it wasn't Godzilla 85, where I think nobody had respect for the source they were given. Yes. And I think that's partly where Burr might have got his respect for the film, because of the people he worked with. Mm -hmm. Contrary to what some people will tell you, he didn't film all his scenes in one crazy day. It was probably more like three to six days. (laughs) Right. What I've got is it was between a day and about seven days. It really depends. Burr says it was a day. Other sources say two days, five days, three days. It it varies. It was quickly. Definitely. Burr definitely got some of his respect for the original from the people he worked with. I'd guarantee it. Yeah. What is it, Jimmy? Oh, okay. We got another report I need to read. Okay. Send it over to my computer right now. Let me see. Oh, goodness. Elijah, this concerns you a little bit, too. Breaking! A gauss has escaped from the aviary. For your safety, we urge all visitors and personnel to take shelter indoors. Captain Shinichi Ozaki and his EDF mutant squads have been deployed to recapture the flying kaiju. We will update you on the situation as it progresses. Please remain calm. Well, we're going to die. No, we're fine. Uh, These (laughs) buildings are all reinforced. We're dealing with kaiju here, and Ozaki and his mutant boys, they know what they're doing, so we should be okay. I assure you, I've worked here long enough to know. Okay. Yeah, yeah. they'll uh, take care of the gauss and then blow up that bunker you were telling me about. Mm. Hopefully. (laughs) Anyway, uh, since everyone is basically being thrown into quarantine part two, let's continue to, as the tagline for the show says, entertain and enlighten. Before you jump in and give us more of a info load, I found something out that I think is really cool. What's that? So Raymond Burr, as a kid, he grew up with his father, and his father moved a lot, so he actually lived briefly in China. 
And then in his early life, he was actually in the Navy for two years. And he only quits when he was shot in the stomach in Okinawa. Oh, wow. So he had been to Japan before King of the Monsters. Hmm. So maybe a part of it was due to the fact that he knew a little bit about the culture, possibly. That sounds like it. So let's talk a little bit besides the intent behind everything. We've hinted at a lot of it. So there was a lot of re-editing with this. New footage was filmed. But it's really interesting. I don't think enough credit is given to actually how well edited King of the Monsters is. But Terry Morse was a noted film doctor and editor. And Mm -hmm. watching it again, I'm just like, this actually is really well edited. If you didn't know any better, and I I admit when I was younger watching this movie, I was fooled. (laughs) You buy into it because they use body doubles for the Japanese characters. For, you know, those few scenes where Burr is supposed to be interacting with the Japanese cast. Mm-hmm. The, they do use some dubbing, but a lot of the times what they do is they have Burr either narrating or he has his buddy there, Iwanaga, who was a Japanese-American. He was actually an insurance salesman, by the way. He was a part-time actor and an insurance salesman. <laughs> perfect. <laughs> yeah. Perfect double to have. <laughs> yeah. And he would translate for him. So they didn't have to do as much dubbing. So it was a cost-cutting measure. But they're also trying doing it to avoid using subtitles. So it, like I said, this is kind of a weird hybrid in a lot of ways. But the thing is, it works. It doesn't feel lazy. It doesn't feel intrusive. It feels very conducive. In fact, for many years, this was the only Godzilla film that was ever released in the United States that still had the Japanese language dialogue intact. Because there's a mm-hmm. lot of it still preserved in this. It's surprisingly good. Now, with that came some changes, some of which I actually think are a little bit better. And this was brought up by Rifle and Godicheski, the silence before Godzilla hits the power lines. That actually creates greater suspense. Mm-hmm. So I like that. And the, the time frame in which they were built actually makes more sense in that one compared to the original. But honestly, I would have to say personally for me, I think the best addition, not only is it the best change, I would say, it kind of outshines the original, and that is Ogata's dialogue to Sarazawa. Yes. And yes, the original dialogue from the 54 original is good. This just, it blows it out of the water. This is iconic. The original dialogue, not quite as much. Let me read it for you, because even though we've all heard it, we all know it, So, Sarazawa says, I'm not going to use the oxygen destroyer. And Ogata tells him, Then you have a responsibility no man has ever faced. You have your fear, which may become reality. And you have Godzilla, which is reality. Good Lord, I'm having chills just reading it. (laughs) Do you know what the original line was, by any chance? Not offhand. I just know it wasn't quite as good. (laughs) It it, It was a lot more straightforward. A much less yeah. poetic. <laughs> I think it was Gutzeskin Rifle often like riffed on the writing in the film. Oh, they weren't bit. as positive. In their commentary, the, they were surprisingly nice to it. Actually, both them and Callet were really nice to it in their commentaries. I don't think Callet really complained at all, if I remember right. He was very positive. But, it, you know, I, I wish that Rifle and Gutzeski had touched on that line because that's iconic. Oh, yeah. For sure, and and it's definitely in the spirit of the original. 
people want to say this is the neutered version. Like, you're going to tell me that the version that has lines like that is the neutered version? Right. I don't think so. This was clearly made by people who cared about this and liked the themes of it. They Mm. just removed the text of it, made it more subtextual. Because I think a lot of it probably would have gone over Americans' heads or they just... They just wouldn't have understood. It's, a, it's again, a cultural difference. It had to be recontextualized for people. And when you recontextualize it like that, that is something everybody can understand. Mm-hmm. Having to make a very, very difficult decision. When you fear something worse might happen, but you have to deal with the problem of the moment. Mm-hmm. Like I said, that's universal. And I think that's why it works. Now, there is something, and I have to give credit to Khaled for pointing this out to me. And ever since I read this several years ago, my previous podcast life, whenever I hear this phrase used, it always takes me back to that essay that he wrote where he talked about this. Because this is a difference between this and the original, which is Sarazawa says he wants to keep the oxygen destroyer from falling into the quote-unquote wrong hands. Because even though it gets subtitled like this, as I've looked at the subtitles, and they still use this phraseology, but my understanding is that in the original, he's basically saying there are no right hands for the oxygen destroyer. Again, reflecting a very Japanese attitude about the nuclear bomb, Mm -hmm. which they would say nobody should have that. Whereas in King of the Monsters, he says wrong hands. Now it's subtle, but it's still coming from this American idea, more, I would say more American idea, maybe more Western for sure, idea that there are right hands for something that destructive, but it shouldn't be in the hands of, say, the Soviets. We can't let them have it, but we can have it. Right. And that's a really interesting idea to ponder because part of me would actually say, yeah, actually, it's probably not good to be in anybody's hands. But there's also a part of me that would say, well, yeah, but I definitely don't want this country to have it. Mm. I don't think North Korea should have nukes because I don't trust North Korea. But then I do kind of have to ask myself a little bit, like, but should other countries have nukes? Right. Something to think about. What's your take on that? That's absolutely right. And here's something to kind of add on. So, example, you just brought up North Korea. You do not want North Korea to have nukes. No. (laughs) What about a North Korean do you think they want other countries to have nukes? It would probably depend on the North Korean. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, they're based off of what I've been told, and I could be wrong here. They are probably told that every country, like America, is out to destroy their culture or something like that. I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. So they might have a fear for us that we have for them. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you don't trust North Korea a nuke you're afraid they'll drop it on us they might feel the exact same way Mm -hmm. but we can't reflect the same fear because we don't have the same cultural understanding Mm -hmm. and i think the same could be said for every country you know japan at the time did not think anybody should have nukes they didn't think nuclear anything was good Mm -hmm. well the debate has been had and you and i have talked about this since 54, you can see films like some of the Haysley films are very much pro-nuclear energy. They support nuclear energy because it is a cleaner way of power. Mm-hmm. It's scientifically proven that nuclear energy can power things for longer at a greater amount for less energy mm-hmm. or less power. Mm-hmm. And it was very good for Japan because it was something that it was a domestic energy source because they so they didn't have to import it which made energy cheaper right 
it's an interesting thing to think about how not only does, you know, what country you grew up in matter with how you think things, but your economic stability and, you know, everything, everything goes into how you interpret things. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a good example. I, I guarantee you, even though they weren't pushing politics, maybe the people working on King of the Monsters are not as concerned with America having nukes as Japan. Mm-hmm. I, I've gotten to arguments and you, you know, this, I, I don't, about I hope the we don't other king of the monsters, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm about to bring that up, uh, and I hope we don't go too far down the rabbit to. hole. We don't have to, but it, but it's a common conversation. But that film clearly shows that nukes are good in certain cases, mm-hmm. and then the question is brought up: Well, what is the certain case? You know, the the argument's been made by people. Oh, dropping the bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima were good because it ended the war. Yeah, that is a big debate to this day. People still mm-hmm. talk about it, and it's a difficult conversation to have because it's there's a lot of evidence that you can point to and say, yeah, it was a good idea, but there's a lot of hypotheticals involved mm-hmm. with it as well. And and the amount of innocent you know, children and people that lost their lives over war Mm-hmm. You know, and, and Honda's whole idea was all war is bad war. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if it's your country or another country, all war is bad. Mm-hmm. And not everybody has that opinion, yeah. you know, especially during that time, there was a lot of push for, you know, America, the land of the free. We have the best army that's fighting for the freedom of everybody. Mm-hmm. But then look at the occupation of Japan. That wasn't freedom. That was <laughs> that was yeah, the, horrible. Yeah. Well, I would say that the occupation of Japan is a lot better than people would say it is. But it's not to say that it was perfect. It was far from perfect. But you know, right. compared to a lot of other things that could have happened, it was probably the best thing that could have happened to Japan at the time. But sure. there were a lot of difficult decisions that had to be made and a lot of difficult things that had to be done in order to make it successful. Right. And so it's one of those things where it is a hard conversation to have because the facts sometimes are very cold yes. and not very nice. Yes. And the hypotheticals are also very cold and not very nice, but they're also good. And then you get into the whataboutisms yes. that dive into such a deep conversation. Like, what about if they didn't drop the nukes? Then maybe more people could have died. You know, more people... More countries could have gotten involved. Maybe more nukes were used because it was a it was a race to get the nuke. Germany was working on them. We were working on them. It was a fight. Maybe Germany dropped a bomb on, and the we, Japanese were also facing potential invasion by the Soviets, and that terrified them more than anything else. Uh, in fact, the, a threat of Soviet invasion was, I think, just as much a moti- of a motivator as the nukes at that point. Because they knew if the Soviets came in and it was the Soviets who occupied them, they were in huge trouble. <laughs> mm-hmm. So they went with the Americans because they knew the Americans were going to be a heck of a lot nicer. And let me tell you, if it was the Soviets who invaded and occupied, we wouldn't have Japan as we know it today. Mm-hmm. Or then you also ask, like, what about if Japan didn't surrender after those two? Would we have dropped a third nuke? Would it have been on Tokyo? Yeah. I think this is a real thing. Theoretical history, 
And I think, doesn't Singular Point touch on that? A little bit. I think a little bit. Theoretical history is easily one of my favorite things because there is no definite answer. Mm -hmm. There's no definite solution to every problem. In the speculative fiction world, that's called alternate history. There's a whole Mm -hmm. subgenre of science fiction based around that. It's actually pretty popular. Uh, Something Mm -hmm. like, say, The Man in the High Castle. That's alternate history. Except it, it, and the premise in that is that the Axis won World War II. And then they basically carved up the whole rest of the world into different empires and ruled that. Like the United States is split between Imperial Japan and Nazi Germany in mm-hmm. this alternate history. Because it flashes forward several decades after the war. And that's the world in which it takes place. Right. And another thing that happened after the occupation of Japan was the industrializing of Japan and the the modernizing. Mm -hmm. A decade after Gojira, Japan had their first holding of the Olympics. It was the first time Japan opened their doors to a wide, wide audience Mm -hmm. across the globe. And that was the same year the bullet train came out. And Mm -hmm. that is easily one of Japan's most popular technology items Mm -hmm. so far. Mm -hmm. Japan, after the occupation, became what we know today. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's not to say there was hardships between, you know, the harshness of some of the occupation, the oil crisis of 1980, the economic crisis that happened in in the late 60s and early 70s. There's tons of things that happened. Mm-hmm. And it's always interesting to go and say, well, what if this didn't happen? Mm-hmm. What if this happened? I'm a believer that everything in history, if you change one thing in history, nothing stays the same. It's uh, the butterfly effect. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a case of that. Mm-hmm. So it's a conversation. To actually bring this back around, there's the question of what if 54 just got a translation. You know, what if it got subtitled yeah. or what if the film just got dubbed? And to that, I, I answer, and this is my big point, and this is where I'm going to try and tell you how I think King of the Monsters is better. Mm-hmm. Because of the fact that it wasn't subtitled, it got a wider release. Mm-hmm. It's proven uh, statistically that the kaiju films that were edited and sometimes included footage from the American distributors, they were more profitable because the distribution companies could push it out more. The people that got them with the typical dubs, no editing, were typically cheaper, and they did not get as wide of a release. Mm-hmm. So without, the, you know, it ha- had Edmund Goldman, when he sold the rights to Jewel Enterprise, had they not done what they did, it might have been very limited. Mm-hmm. Had they subtitled it, it might have became in the same area as Rashomon, where when Japanese people came to America from the entertainment industry and they said, when they asked about Japanese films and everybody said, Rashomon, I know that movie, mm-hmm. it would have been the same. Mm-hmm. Oh, Gojira, yeah. But instead, we were given something iconic, something timeless. It is ingrained in when you talk Godzilla with most people who are older than you or I when they talk about it one of the most common things I hear is Raymond Burr edited into that Japanese movie that is iconic 
upon pop culture. Little did Terry Morris, I think, realize that what he was doing was about to become one of the most popular monsters in cinema history. Mm -hmm. That is one of the key staples of the franchise is Raymond Burr. Mm -hmm. And Toho sees that. Notice in the Criterion set, going back to the first thing we discussed, Mm -hmm. the Criterion set, when released, both the original and the box, included the alternate version of 54, Mm -hmm. King of the Monsters. While it included the Universal cut of King Kong versus Godzilla, that is because Universal demanded that. Mm -hmm. But no other film got the same treatment. Not in the Criterion set, no. Right, and uh, referring to even Australian releases, King of the Monsters has been released Mm -hmm. with 54. None of the others, I believe, have gotten their English counterparts. And there's a reason why Toho has allowed King of the Monsters to be preserved, Mm -hmm. to be distributed. And it's more so than just the copyright is in question. It's because the film is timeless. Godzilla, King of the Monsters, alive before your very eyes. Mm -hmm. That has been ingrained upon generations and generations of monster fans and kaiju Mm -hmm. tokusatsu fans alike. Mm -hmm. Without Without it. Well, you go. Go ahead. No, no, you you go. You go. I was just going to say, (laughs) without that version, Godzilla, I don't think would have become a pop culture icon. It's arguable we wouldn't have the kaiju fandom like we do now. And even the, however minor it might have been, even the American influence on the Godzilla films that you see throughout the 60s might have not been there. If not for King of the Monsters, we might have not had Jimmy's hero, (laughs) Nick Adams. Yeah, yeah, you and your man crush. He may have not been in Monster Zero. We might have not had Columbia's involvement with some of Toho's films in the late 50s and early 60s. Right. You know, all of Mothra may have not even gotten made, or at least not made how it ended up being without Columbia's involvement. But Columbia had to see that there was a market for this. And it was a market Mm -hmm. that was helped along by King of the Monsters. So whatever the movie's actual merits in terms of filmmaking and storytelling and all that, we can have that talk. But the impact of King of the Monsters is undeniable, just like you said. Mm -hmm. And to add on to that, when King of the Monsters came out, it was trashed by critics, just like the 2019 film. Mm Mm-hmm. Statements were made that nobody in the cast could act, even though the same critic said that Takashi Shimura was the greatest actor in the world a few years prior with Ikaru. Yeah. Oh, the, the, the entire film was demolished by critics, but it was the fourth foreign film to make over a million dollars at the box office in America. Mm-hmm. The fourth. Two million dollars, which I know doesn't sound like a lot to modern audiences, but that was a lot of money back then. Right. Especially and considering, considering that they didn't invest a whole lot to make it. Right. It is about $50,000, I'd say, they put into the film. Mm-hmm. Because it was $25,000 for the licensing fee alone. And then, you know, you have to pay your actors and whatnot, but it was a cheap job. So $2 million was a huge turnaround. And the other three foreign films were Italian. Rashomon did not hit that. Ikaru did not hit that. None of the Kurosawa films hit $2 million in the box office. And there's a reason. Godzilla King of the Monsters was a film that appeased to a wider audience, that appeased to people 
bigger than just your art house cinema fans or your B-movie fans. It was a film that was in the middle. It was that gray area. Mm -hmm. That was exactly what it needed. Mm -hmm. If it wasn't for King of the Monsters, ABPT Pictures would not have tried to do the Volcano Monsters. Warner Brothers would definitely have not done Gigantus the Fire Monster. We would have not got the co-productions between Columbia and Toho. We might not have even gotten King Kong versus Godzilla. Right. Which is what catapulted the kaiju genre to like be, to being one of the biggest things in Japanese pop culture in the 60s. Right. Oh, by the way, just to put it into perspective, I crunched the numbers. <laughs> uh, $2 million in 1956 is about $20 million now. That's pretty good. That's more than Shin Godzilla made. Yeah. <laughs> just to put it into perspective. And remember, like I said, Rashomon made $200,000. In two years. And Godzilla King of the Monsters made two million in a much shorter amount of time. Right. And it wasn't even televised until 1959. Mm -hmm. And the people that televised it, the first rights were RKO, the people that did King Kong. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it was dubbed and had the narration and everything added longevity to it, which only fueled the interest in Godzilla outside of Japan. Toho, I think, realizes they owe a lot to King of the Monsters. So that might be why they release King of the Monsters with Godzilla 54. Right. And even after King of the Monsters was so successful, they went back to Toho because people were knocking on their door. We want your film in our country. We want a French dub. We want a colorized edition. And that's what they got. They went to Toho and they struck a deal for distribution of the film to France, to Italy, to Canada, not to Canada, because Canada was included in the, in the package. Mm-hmm. But they made deals to send this film to other countries dubbed in their own language, localizing it even further just so they could continue to spread the word of Godzilla. Yeah. And for that reason, King of the Monsters is a time capsule. I think it was needed in 1956. You wouldn't do something like this now because times are different. But as we've been saying, it's an important historical artifact. Is it as good as the 54 version? No. But this arguably might be the more culturally significant version. I hate to say that. It might be the more culturally significant version. Are you saying that I convinced you? You helped solidify it for me. I've been pondering this for quite some time. But yeah, this is important. I think it deserves greater appreciation from the fandom. And I think, honestly, it deserves to be more than just a special feature on Mm -hmm. a Blu-ray. Which is why Mm -hmm. I actually like how Classic Media did it, where they just gave it its own disc. And there's a reason why both films have commentaries. Commentaries aren't the cheapest thing on the planet, and it's really hard to, you know, get them scheduled and do all of that. But they've done that twice now for the film. Mm -hmm. There's a reason for that. These companies realize how culturally important it is to put out this version. And I know it is a commonly found statement that Godzilla King of the Monsters is a watered down, is, you know, a cheap edits. It's inferior in every way. But to that, I say, why? 
like you've been saying, Nathan, the subtext is there. Uh, Terry Morse in 1951 made a movie called Unknown World, which is more anti-nuclear than this adaptation. Mm -hmm. So the director of this film was not pro-nuclear. The film made a ton of money. It was the fourth film, the first Japanese film to meet a wide audience, not only on the big screen, but on small screens alike. The film is exactly what the franchise needed to get its feet off the ground. Yeah. And maybe it did go on ice for three years afterwards until Gigantus, and that failed miserably. And it went on ice again until 62. But without this film, Toho would have not been more confident in that international distribution that they eventually they demanded and required foreign companies to come to them and say, we want to buy your movie. Mm-hmm. Because without that, they would not have made the money. But they did. Mm-hmm. And with that money, they knew they could continue making these films. Same with Dae. Dae did the exact same thing, even working with the company saying, if you agree to buy these movies, we will make them. Mm -hmm. And that's what they did. Yes. I've been well aware of that as part of the year of Gamera. (laughs) Very much so. Yeah. As I've been saying, there's a lot that could be said about this movie, just as much, I would say, as the 1954 original. But I can't drag this on for too long. I also have to keep my intrepid producer employed, so he will be sharing my leftover notes in his blog. Also, all of this research, I'm hoping to work with Danny DeMana. We've talked about it a couple of times on the air. We're hoping to put together a book of essays talking about the scripts and the stories for these wonderful movies. So that's where a lot of my leftover research is going to go, is making that book possible. Well, that was fun, and you get to meet Jet Jaguar today. He didn't pipe in very much, but mostly because nothing classified or obscene was said today, because he's my dump button. (laughs) <laughs> i see i see <laughs> yeah yeah but i think you'll have some good times talk to him about dealing with megalon back in the day oh man you want to hear some wacky stories hmm. does jet know about jimmy's only fans page you do wait i didn't even know about the jimmy do we need to have a talk hey don't try to change the subject on me oh wait There's another updated report I need to read. Okay, send it to my laptop. What do you got? Breaking. After a short engagement, the EDF mutants have managed to subdue the escaped Gauss. The White Heron has been dispatched to move the unconscious Kaiju back to her enclosure in the aviary. No damage by the Kaiju has been reported. You may move about the island freely. Have a great day on Monster Island and keep finding a better way forward. Huh, well... Those guys are nothing if not efficient. That didn't take long. Hmm. It's either that or we talked about a movie for way too long. Also quite possible. But I didn't know you were loaning out the white heron to those guys in case they needed it for missions, Jimmy. Oh, that's how you were able to even get it in your garage in the first place? I get it now. So it's not completely yours, I take it? I understand you don't want to get into that conversation. Okay, then. Well, in which case, Elijah, you know what time it is? It's normally because 
I have to say it's mailbag, but I'm not on that podcast today. <laughs> yeah, no, you're not on that podcast. And enjoy your lead while you have it. Or now. Uh, uh-huh. Or now. <laughs> yeah, I don't have to deal with Mr. Lord Gatekeeper's pretentious opinions. Oh, about certain movies that you that shall remain nameless? <laughs> oh, oh, no. How from me on the car? He is. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, yeah. That poor unwashed he, swine, right? Mm. Needs to go to school, I think. He needs to go back to school. Right. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. But no, it's actually time for the Patreon shout-outs. Go show Travis Alexander! Michael Bantis Hamilton! Danny Domena! Eli Harris! Chris Cook! Diamond Noise! The Cellcast! Tofu Fury! <laughs> you got the best one, man. You got Tofu Fury. It's so fun to say. <laughs> tofu Fury! Oi! <laughs> <laughs> it's I want that mar I want that movie to exist. I'm just saying. <laughs> Tofu Fury. <laughs> Tofu Fury. <laughs> <laughs> oh, listen to us being a couple of dumb nerds. <laughs> anyway. Just to, and now to let everyone know really quick, upcoming episodes. Ah, oh, the day I have been waiting for all year when I was told. I had to do not just a couple of Gamera movies, but all of them. In our next episode, we are getting to Gamera, Guardian of the Universe, finally. And I will be bringing back my original group of tourist co-hosts. So hopefully all of you listeners will get to hear wonderful insights from my friends Nick Hayden, Timothy Deal, and Joe and Joy Matter as I start showing them the Hazy Gamera trilogy for the first time. None of them have seen it, and I if, can't wait to share it with all of you. If none of them or you, Nathan, talk about the, the UK dub, I'm giving this podcast a one-star <laughs> review on, on iTunes. I'll look into it then. It has gone on per record now. Look into the UK dub. Gotcha. And then we have another special little episode coming up. We'll be having our second Patreon-sponsored episode, Elijah. This one coming to you from Damon Noise, who you heard a few months ago on the Gauss episode and who has been shouted out just now on this podcast and in many other episodes. And you know what we're going to be talking about? What he is sponsoring for his episode, Elijah? You know, I feel like it was originally a musical, and I think it's from a little country called Denmark. He did want that, but that's being saved for later. But that is Ah. coming. That is coming. But no, we're going with the magic serpent. Ooh, that's a fun one. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that, actually. If you don't bring up how the toad suit was reused from Nikaji Ninja uh, (laughs) or uh, Red Shadow... I will uh, be very upset with you. <laughs> I'll be sure. Again, on permanent record, I'll be sure to consult with you about that. But speaking of you, Elijah, MIFV would not be complete without shameless self-promotion. What do you got for us, little gatekeeper? 
Well, hello everybody. I am Elijah. I am the, uh, I'd argue the better half of this episode today. (laughs) And if you guys want true quality content, minus the Jimmy parts, that's true quality, especially as true fans, high class. Oh, you mean OnlyFans? Oh, well, to be an OnlyFan, you have to be a true fan. This is true. So This is very true. Sometimes Jimmy gets more love than me. I wonder why. <laughs> anyway, so yes, I run a podcast called Kaiju Conversation. You can find us on any platform. I actually just added us to Amazon Music the day of this <gasps> recording. Oh my gosh! Yeah, this is pretty cool. I also have a Discord server under the same name where we talk about kaiju topics. I also have a Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. Twitter is at kaiju underscore converse. And then the Facebook and Instagram is at Kaiju Conversation. I also have a uh, YouTube channel for the podcast that uh, will be uploading more videos, our backlog of stuff. I also have some YouTube exclusives like uh, Toku Fandom Tales. And I have an interview with the designer of the 2021 Mecha Godzilla design up there on the channel, which is really fun. I also have a YouTube channel myself, ET13 Productions. It's not being used right now, but eventually it will be. I also have a Instagram at ET13 Productions and a Twitter at that same handle where I post uh, the Twitters for my figure photography and my Twitter is where I post, you know, my my takes on kaiju stuff or all that. I also have a personal Twitter at E as an Elephant Thomas 1975 where I might be posting some behind the scenes stuff for episodes podcast or just whatever is in this empty melon that sits on the top of my body. <laughs> But, you know, Nathan knows all about empty melons on top of bodies. So, oh, so, so. <laughs> you keep this up. I'm not even going to have you back for reptilian. I'm warning you right now. Okay. <laughs> and you can have Michael back on. You, I know how much you love to go back and forth with him. Oh, yes. Yes, indeed. He forgot something, Jimmy? What's that? Really, Elijah, you have an OnlyFans account for the podcast called Kaiju Consummation? I do. I post a ton of kaiju feed pictures. Uh, Quinn Tarantino's actually subscribed to it. Well, someone's coming up in the world. And on Mm -hmm. that happy yet also very weird note, hey, Jimbo. Yes, I just called you that. Cue those credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nate Marchand. If you enjoy the show and want to join the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Your message could be read on a future episode of the show. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter, where our handle is at themonsterisla1. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASA Jimmy and the Monster Island Board of Directors at Monster Isla BOD. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations. And be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, and Twitch. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wanderer on the Offensive Live Edit by B33J, Sarax, Juan Madrano, 
and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus, and The Open Way, Battle with the Colossus by Koatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus. All film and audio clips belong to the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended or implied. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and or Podchaser to spread the word about the show. You can also support us by joining MIFV Max on Patreon. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara! I hope that's the last news report I have to give for a while. How much assurance do people need? Ozaki and the mutants are professional kaiju wranglers, among other things. Good point. Never underestimate groupthink. Or in this case, group fear. Well, what do you think you, me, and Jessica watch a movie tonight? I just got the host. It can't be true. It can't be true. Have you heard of Gary? Please tell me you saw him today. Whoa down, Mr. Martin. My apologies, Mr. Marsham, but I have to know. Well, uh, I did talk with him on the phone. When? This morning? Hell's bells! Something wrong? After the mutants pacified the escaped Gauss, I went down there to see if, if anything would require a legal action to be taken. Normally I would have sent Gary, but he didn't come into the office today. I snapped some pictures and took some notes. That dino bird was out cold, but it still popped a huge pile of... Droppings. The smell about punched my lights out, so I tried to call Gary on my mobile horn to get him to finish the survey and... And, uh... Damn it. What happened? I, I, uh... I, I heard it. Gary's ringtone for me on his phone. Perry Mason theme. It reminds me so much of my Uncle Steve. It, uh, it, it came from the Gauss Gat. One of the mutants put on a hazmat suit and dug out a cell phone from the mound. It, it, it was Gary's. Oh, Gary. I put too much on your shoulders. Those thin, thin shoulders. There was no oh, way I this was an accident. And Honky Kong. Oh, Gary. You're right. Raymond? Yeah. It's time I told you everything. Thank you.